In episode 95 of the Nerd Byword, we will attempt the very difficult task of separating art from artist. What happens when your moral compass is spinning like a top? The Byword begins now. Welcome into another exclusive episode of the Nerd Byword, the only podcast that can properly perform a perfect people's elbow, complete with eyebrow raise and elbow pad toss. On today's episode, Dave and I will be diving into the muck that is separating art from artists. We've selected a few of the most problematic creators in the nerd world that have created pieces of work that have been impactful on our lives and have a difficult discussion as to whether or not we can still enjoy those pieces of media. But first, it's time for... Dave, you're coming out of left field with this one. Uh, This did not pop up on my radar at all. Yeah, well, apparently uh, we have begun traveling in slightly different circles there, Chris. This is new. (laughs) Uh, So uh, apparently there is some scuttlebutt going on that uh, the Disney Plus She-Hulk series may be in some creative trouble. Uh, The source for this new rumor is quote-unquote industry insider Jeff Snyder, who uh, claims that uh, several people behind the scenes with knowledge of the series are having concerns about whether the whole thing is coming together. Uh, He was apparently on a, uh, a recent episode of The Hot Mic with Jeff and John, And there, uh, he said, and I quote, I've heard not good things behind the scenes, and I've asked whether it's Moon Knight or Miss Marvel or Secret Invasion or any of these projects. They're always like, She-Hulk is the one that could be a problem. He went on to say, I've heard it from people working on it, from people actually working on it, who are just like, we'll see. I think that's a lot of Marvel things, honestly. And you you know where it's like, uh, this could be really stupid, Like, we'll see. I'm sure people making Guardians of the Galaxy felt that way, right? And most of the time, Marvel pulls it out. But there will come a time where they won't. That's just the laws of movie making, the laws of numbers. Now, uh, as our listeners no doubt know, uh, She-Hulk is, of course, uh, a long-running comic book character. Uh, Jennifer Walters, the cousin of Bruce Banner, who gets a blood transfusion and becomes her own sort of hulked out version uh she's a lawyer uh and for several of her series there's sort of tongue-in-cheek humorous approach to the character which uh in the past has worked really well on the page um so chris i'm very curious to hear first of all what your thoughts are on this rumor since you have not really heard anything about this so far i honestly think that as is the case with a lot of these quote unquote industry insiders. Um, I think there's a lot of Marvel fatigue, um, MCU fatigue from people who are not particularly comic book movie fans. I think that there are a lot of Hollywood elitists and critics that are just waiting for something to flop. Um, and that, and that goes with either franchise, either, you know, DC or Marvel's, there are a lot of, there was a lot of nitpicking and, um, you know, 
casting of aspersions with a lot of the the recent uh, releases uh, theatrically um, by some Hollywood critics who you can tell just by the wording of their reviews, they're tired of having to go watch these movies. Um, I, I know that it seem, might seem disingenuous as well, but like all this influx of industry insiders, I don't know, you know, what to attach that to. Um, I've never heard of Jeff Snyder before. Um, this is my first hearing of him. And then, you know, there's a, always a lot of rumblings and rumors, but like, how much do you pay any credence to that? Um, so I, I definitely think that there are a lot of people that are just, they're, they're, they're done with the MCU. They're fatigued by Marvel and they're ready for something new. So um, maybe that's the case. Um, at the same time, like Marvel has been unsuccessful before. Uh, you think of things like Thor The Dark World was a huge disappointment, even though I ride for it. I enjoy it. Uh, I think with a couple of that, that could be something that we like fix with our formula. I think with a couple of tweaks, I think that's a really strong film. Um, you know, Iron Man 2 was awful. <laughs> um, you know, The Eternals was a disappointment um for a lot of people so it's not like marvel hasn't dropped the ball on occasion here or there it just seems like there are a lot of people who want something else and and they're tired of quote unquote having to consume this marvel content and to that i say if it's not your thing don't watch it if you are looking for something else just change the channel you know like i i've detailed this before i couldn't anymore with the cw shows so you know what rather than just sandbagging them and just throwing stones at them. I just watched something that I did enjoy. Um, and, and so like, I, I just don't understand it. And, and, you know, um, that, that's honestly my honest reaction is we, we haven't even, I don't think we even have like a premiere date for this and, and people are already, you know, saying stuff. So, uh, we'll wait and see, like, you know, She-Hulk is a very popular character. Um, I know that um, Cody Ziegler, who's written recent issues of Amazing Spider-Man, uh, is one of the writers on the show. So I, there's at least one person that I know can write funny stuff. And She-Hulk is, you know, a famously comedic character. Um, so uh, I'll wait and see. And, and if it's not good, if I don't like it, then that'll be that. But, you know, this is a long ways out. Yeah, it's it's interesting because when you just look at the pedigree of the show, you know, you got uh, Tatiana Maslany, who's an absolutely ridiculously talented actress. Um, you have um, a Rick and Morty writer, Jessica Gao, who's actually helming the show. Um, I, and then, of course, you know, there's the rumors that uh, Charlie Cox is going to pop back up as uh, as Daredevil in this one again. Um, which makes sense considering the whole legal backdrop. I think the description of the show as a half hour legal comedy is throwing some people for a loop. Um, you know, they, I, I think there's an expectation that this is going to be more superhero-y again, and they seem to be leaning more into the, the comedic stuff, which I think is actually a smart move because if all these shows keep feeling the same way, then, you know, this is definitely going to contribute to fatigue. But if we keep messing around with genres in the MCU and play around a little bit with it, you know, it's going to be extremely interesting moving forward. It is just really a matter of, um, you know, how, how they execute it. When I think, for example, of, when I think, for example, of like 
uh, funny legal drama. Uh, the thing that, yeah, well, legal series, not drama, but just like a funny legal series. That the one that always comes back to me is that late '90s, early 2000s series, uh, Ally McBeal, which was absolutely legal based and and absolutely uproariously and surreally funny. Um, and I think if they take like some kind of approach like that to it a little bit, that would be a very very fascinating approach to the show. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm very very curious to see what they do with this because it sounds like something so very different again from what they've been doing with the MCU. I think I'm I'm almost now at this point most excited about this of all the series releasing this year, just because my my Miss Marvel hype has been dampened a little bit. Um, so 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 here's <laughs> hoping this 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 one meets expectations. And and I think that the Guardians of the Galaxy one um, is is an apt comparison. I rem- you know like that's the that's the the first movie that we ever watched together, um, and like it just like took you completely for a loop. Like I have no idea who these characters are. Like this should not work, and it's perfect. It's it's probably up there with Thor Ragnarok as my favorite MCU film because what what do those two things have in common? They took a creator who was unique and had a vision for that property, you know, with, with the, the, the severe downturn that was Thor, the dark world. Then you bring in someone like Taika Waititi who has like, you know what, what the hell, you know, let's just go for it. Like the last movie was disappointment. We can only go up from here. And it turned out just beautiful. I I absolutely love those two movies. They're probably my two favorite installations in the MCU. And so just taking those chances um, and trying something new. And if it works, it's great. If it doesn't work, okay, then we tried. But um, I, I love that they're shaking up the, you know, the formula, so to speak. WandaVision, you know, it had a, a few, you know, nitpicks on my part. Um, but it was a complete genre blend that was really cool and fascinating and kept you your butt in the chair or wherever you were watching it week after week after week. And it kept you coming back. Loki was fun and imaginative. Um, so I, I really, I really do enjoy this. And I I really think this too is a side effect of the, at least I can't speak for other countries, but I think of, of American entertainment consumers, our lack of attention span. We are already trying to close up shop on shows that don't even have a premiere date yet. So, um, I'm, I'm someone who's open-minded. Uh, you mentioned the Ms. Marvel thing, like we'll see. I'm not as well versed in Kamala Khan as you are, but I, I'm not like ready to just jump ship already. I think that there is still so much inspirational potential from that character that I'm still coming to it with an open mind. Um, is it a little disappointing? Yeah, but I, I'm not ready to cut it off whole hog. And I, I think that burying these shows and these films before they even start is a, is a mistake. And I want to, <clears throat> I do want to clarify my comment about my Miss Marvel hyping, you know, tampered. I am a super fan of Kamala Khan and I have um, mad love for the character. Um, I am a little disappointed in the changes they've made to her power set, but I am still going to watch the show because I'm hoping that even if they don't necessarily get the power stuff right, that they get her right, her personality and who she is. Um, and if they get that right, then the show, you know, will still be enjoyable on, on some level to me. So I'm I'm very open-minded, not as far as like, hey, I'm, I'm loving these changes. From what I've seen, I don't. But I still want there to be, you know, 
something that I can like in that show. And I think that the potential for that is still there. And while we're here, because it's technically not a nerd commendation, it's not really a nerdy thing, but if we're talking about legal dramas or legal comedies, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything better than Boston Legal. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> I love that show so much. And it's just like... The, the the price of admission is worth William Shatner and James Spader. The only person who can push William Shatner and maybe out Shatner him or at least come close is James Spader. So, I mean, like just the two of them going thespian for thespian and monologue for monologue and just being the weird, quirky actor uh, like savant. I, I just love that. I just love that show so much. Yeah, I've seen a few episodes of it and I always, you know, I always I'm so determined to sit down and, and actually watch it and it, it never quite works out for me. But <laughs> but what I've seen of it absolutely is ridiculously fun. So I'm I'm there for it, man. All right, Chris, what are you bringing to the nerd news table this week? All right, we're switching roles here. I'm bringing the DC news. Um, so fans of Matt Reeves' The Batman, which we reviewed on the Byword a few weeks back, retreated to a deleted scene featuring an encounter between Robert Pattinson's Batman and Barry Keoghan's The Joker. In the theatrical cut of the film, Keoghan's role is reduced to a conversation with Paul Dano's Riddler while the two are incarcerated in Arkham Asylum at the film's close. This scene involves... Batman visiting the Joker at Arkham for advice on how to catch the Riddler. Keoghan's appearance and portrayal and portrayal are notably different from previous on-screen iterations of the character, as the Joker is visibly scarred and/or disfigured both on his face and hands. Joker also attempts to draw a comparison between himself and Batman, something that is not entirely unique but effective nonetheless. Dave, we've seen the Joker a thousand times, it seems. What was your reaction to this footage? That's interesting. Um, There's not a lot there. And, you know, we can even go so far as to say that we don't ever get a very, very clear look at the Joker. I know some people, um, you know, on social media have been like freeze framing it and trying to put like the different pieces together so you can get a clear look at his entire face. I'm, I'm not that interested in that part of it just because A, it's a deleted scene and B, even there, they were very uh, careful not to, you know, show everything so they i think you know if they decide to bring the character back in a sequel there's flexibility there to redesign if they decide that that design is not what they're going for more interested in the performance you know obviously they must have decided fairly early on that they were going to delete the scene because there is very clearly some audio stuff going on there that they would have fixed with some voiceover Mm -hmm. Uh, in in post-production so i had to listen to it a couple of times just to get the conversation right i found i found Um, one with subtitles and that was very helpful (laughs) i would say so yeah so um just kind of listening to the conversation how the back and forth works i think um it is a very good characterization of the joker if you're looking at the look um it seems very heavily inspired by um uh brian azarello's joker um, if you look that up on on Google, a lot of those images you know seem to fall in line a little bit with that kind of the the the, the crooked teeth and and the scarring, and there seems to be like a lot of wrinkles going on in his face. Like you know what I mean? There's like a lot of lines on his face. That's a very that's a very Azarello thing. Um, so I, it seems to be rooted in at least one interpretation as far as visual goes. Um, but the writing was very, very good on that conversation, I think. It felt very much like something that could have come straight from a Batman comic book. Uh, I really like 
um, the moment when the Joker kind of turns it around and tries to make the conversation about Batman. And he's like, let's focus on, on the Riddler. And he's like, but why? Yours is so much more interesting. And and that is that is Joker all over. He's just uh, obsessed with Batman. And he, he's the most interesting thing to him. So I, I thought that captured the character really well. Now, I'm not going to stand here and go like super fan and say, this is the greatest Joker ever or some such. I mean, we, it's a it's a five-minute deleted scene where you don't even get a clear shot at the guy. But I think it is the foundation for an interesting inter- interpretation if they decide um, to go into that direction whole hog in a sequel. Um, I will say that at this point... Uh, anything would be a decent palate cleanser from uh, <laughs> from you know the the Zack Snyder Joker version because if I have to see one more damage tattoo across a forehead, I'm, I'm just going to exit out of the nearest window. So it, it at this point, you know, anything is better than that. Oh man, um, you know what, Barry Keoghan. I hope I'm pronouncing that surname right. Uh, it's not my expertise, but. I will say that I understand why they cut it from the film. It doesn't really fall in line. I think I think it, it, it was the best decision. But I am intrigued going forward. And Barry Keoghan was not on my radar before The Eternals. And so you have a really fascinating moral conflict that we talked about when we reviewed Eternals with the character of Druig. Um, you know, and the concept of mind control. And I think that character was one of the ones that we listed as underserved by the film and I wanted more of. And then, you know, we have this deleted scene and I was captivated by the conversation alone that was left in the film. So I'm very excited to kind of follow this actor, you know, moving forward because he is all new to me and both performances that I've seen here are, are really, you know, have caught my attention. Yeah, I can agree with that. All right, that wraps up nerd news for this week. Um, when we come back from this, our first break, we're going to dive into the sticky situation of separating art from artists. All right, welcome back to this week's Byword. Okay, Dave, this is going to be a tough one. So separating art from artist, and this has been an episode idea that I've been toying with for a long time, um, ever since the the first person that we're going to talk about today, the Joss Whedon news came out with um, the Justice League situation, Ray Fisher spoke his um, testimony of the events that took place during the filming of that after he took over for Zack Snyder. Um, and then um, more actors and actresses came out uh, and speaking about the behavior of Joss Whedon, uh, notably the first one that comes to mind is Charisma Carpenter and her experience while working on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So I've been kind of toying with this one because our first homework assignment that I gave to you was Joss Whedon's uh, Astonishing X-Men. And that was one of my favorite runs at the time. And now kind of revisiting that property, that title with all of this knowledge, it kind of skews my reading of the text. Um, So uh, let's jump right into it, Dave. Um, You have a lot more experience with Whedon uh, than I do. You're a big Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. I've never watched the show. My primary exposure to Whedon are the Avengers films and... um, 
astonishing X-Men, as I noted. So when that comes down and you learn things like this, what's your reaction? You know, this is actually probably one of the most difficult ones on this list that we're going to be talking about today for me, period. Um, And that is simply because of the fact that uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer in particular um, was a a revelation to me um, as a kid. I vividly... I vividly recall my first exposure. I remember, you know, when I was living in Germany, the the premiere, uh, well, it was a two-hour premiere, the first two episodes. And my my parents told me that I was allowed to watch the first part, but then it's a school night and I have to go to bed. And I can, you know, record the second episode on, on VHS tape and then watch it the next day if I want to. And my parents went to bed and told me, now don't forget, after the first part, you need to go to bed, it's a school night. And I did not. I I could not tear myself away from the screen. From the first moment, uh, I remember the opening scene fairly well, where you have a a couple breaking into the school to get up to no good or something, a a boy, a teenage boy and girl. And you always think in a situation like that, the guy's going to prey on the, on the, you know, on the on the helpless girl, and they completely inverted that right at the beginning with the with the girl being the vampire and and killing the guy, and then you're like, ooh, now this is playing around with 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 horror. This is playing around with the tropes. This is this is something different. The whole vibe of that show was so incredibly different from anything I'd seen up to that point, and I was just instantly obsessed. Um, and I followed. You know, uh, Whedon's creative juices to the spin-off series Angel later. Um, I ate up Firefly and and the sequel movie Serenity. I still I still adore that as well. And I'm not alone. There's a huge fandom of quote unquote brown coats that will not let that show go, no matter how long it's been gone. Um, and I still think it's one of the great missed opportunities of sci-fi television. Um, and then you know kind of rejoicing that, you know, King of the Nerds, you know, Whedon would get a shot at making an Avengers movie. Um, so this, I think of all the ones that we're going to talk about, this one affects me on a personal level the most. And hearing that there were so many, you know, issues behind the scenes, um, especially with female cast members, even on Buffy and Angel, you know, going that far back, that this is not, you know, a recent development, but something that... This it was present this whole time on these creative endeavors that that connected with me so much on a personal level. It, this is is incredibly difficult. I will freely admit that I have periodically revisited my Buffy the Vampire Slayer DVDs and just kind of you know rewatched the whole series, probably since original air, maybe four or five times straight through rewatched the whole series. But since this whole thing started, I have not. Um, I have not get, gotten those DVDs back out and revisited the show. And I'm not sure what my reaction is going to be when I do. Um, separating Whedon from Buffy is, is is almost impossible. You know, at the same token, though, I I feel like it is a discredit to everybody else who was involved in the right. making of, of something like Buffy to completely now say, you know, its impact on television is is no longer valid. The impact it had on me personally is not is no longer valid because the guy that was at the head of this machine, um, the guy who was basically driving the car, um, was apparently a pretty objectionable human being. You know, um, cannot blame the probably dozen writers 
that were working on that show at any given time for that? Well, probably not. Can I, you know, blame the the actors that were involved, the 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 you know the the cameraman? Can I can I blame you know all the behind the scenes people that you know the sound sound guy? You know, like can I blame all these people that came through this through this show for the fact that the guy at the head of the machine did these horrible things? And so it's a very complex feeling. On the one hand, I feel like it would be the right thing to judge the art on its merits and to, you know, continue to appreciate it for what it was and watch it, um, especially as a tribute to the, all the other people that were involved. And on the other hand, it will be very difficult to see, you know, Charisma Carpenter pop up on the screen and not think, Boy, Joss Whedon sure was a horrible human being to her just because she happened to get pregnant during the production of Angel. So th- this this is on on a personal level the one that affects me the most and leaves me with the most conflicted feelings, Chris. And I and I think um, you know three of the four individuals that we're going to talk about today are men, and I think part of the reason that this is so difficult is there is such a lack of accountability, particularly towards straight white males. Um, in American society at large, um, you know, things like this get swept under the rug in the name of industry, in the name of business, um, and things go quiet for so long until you have a brave individual to speak out like Ray Fisher or Charisma Carpenter. Um, and, and so it's just, it's, it's very, very difficult, the lack of accountability. And, and the result of that is I think that we, the consumer, are forced to take on this role of morality police when you know i'm i'm a i'm a firm believer in second chances you know as a fan of superhero stories you know we all love a good redemption story and and a redemption arc but when there's no accountability for these offenders and they don't claim you know responsibility for the ways in which they've erred and as a result never learn from their mistakes it's really really hard to separate these two things you know and it's fascinating too when you're looking just at like creative people, like the Ray Fisher situation in particular is so fascinating to me. Um, because I have the deepest respect for Ray Fisher being willing to stand up and and you know and and pull the curtain back on these things that were happening behind the scenes. Um and he is by far uh you know, probably the best thing about Zack Snyder's Justice League cut. Um, the arc of Cyborg and, and the way Ray Fisher performs, it's probably one of the best things about that movie. You know, at the same token, as crazy as that is, if you're looking just at like, like, like if you look at quality of, of human being, like from what we know, at least, Joss Whedon was, was in the making of many of these projects just absolutely deplorable. And and Zack Snyder seems to be this just really genuinely nice dude. Um, And then you look at the product, Mm-hmm. And for the most part, uh, continuously throughout both of their careers, I continuously have connected more with the creative output of Joss Whedon than the creative output of Zack Snyder. Even though Zack Snyder is, you know, clearly, from what we know at least, the the, the much better guy mm-hmm. on on an on an right. ethical and, and moral level. So you know, you know, when you're talking about Zack Snyder, will I will I check out you know his remake of Dawn of the Dead again? Absolutely, it's one of my favorite you know horror movies of that of that you know decade. Um, 
but so much of what he put out, you know, like his his adaptation of, of Watchmen felt felt really hollow to me. Uh, you know, cool looking, but but kind of missing the point. Um, there was that Sucker Punch movie, which just was completely passed me by, and I didn't connect with it at all. So there's so many things that that Snyder has made, being the cool dude that he is, that on a creative level does not connect with me at all. And then this this deplorable dude makes these projects and they instantly click. And so, you know, then, then you kind of turn the mirror on yourself and you start to wonder a little bit, like, like what in the world is it about this guy's work that connects with me? And what does that say about me? You know? And that, that's, that's an odd sensation as well at that point. Yeah. Um, And I think for me, particularly with Whedon, the greatest grievance that I have with something like astonishing X-Men is, um, just the mischaracterization of someone. And this is, this is one of my first introductions into Emma Frost as a character. And my read on that character was largely based on the way that he characterized her in that series. And now looking back and comparing, now I have a much more expanded history with the character. I've grown to absolutely adore her. She's one of my all-time favorite characters now. And then comparing where she, how she's written in other series by other creators, it is starkly different from how she's written by Whedon. It is very much a Kitty is the hero and... Emma is this most awful, just, uh, you know, loosely moral character who is for, you know, for all intents and purposes, the antagonist to our hero Kitty. You know, there's definite Buffy comparisons. You said this at the time and other people have, have made that connection as well. Um, in fact, some people, I believe, said that Kitty Pride was one of the inspirations for Buffy as a character. Um, and so, you know, seeing that as one of my first introductions into a character that I've come and grown to love, it just makes that much more sense as why he would write Emma Frost that way. And that's my greatest gripe uh, personally that I have with his work. And here's the, here's the other thing that I think we we like to forget um, when we decide that we're going to like completely disconnect from anything he had a hand in, you know, like, let's say, you know, we, we decide we cannot separate art from artist and we just need to purge Whedon's work from our lives. And we don't want to ever revisit Buffy or, or Firefly and Serenity or Avengers or whatever, right? You're just going to purge it. Then you get into the fact that he worked as a script doctor for a long time. And some movies that he went completely uncredited on, he had a hand in creating. And then are you willing to go that far and ex- exercise, excise those things from your life too? Like what about, um, what about the old Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock movie, Speed? Like he, he, he ghost wrote that movie basically. Uh, the writer of the movie, Graham Yost, said that Joss Whedon wrote 98.8% of the dialogue. Like that movie is basically Joss Whedon. Toy Story was script doctored by Joss Whedon. Toy Story. Toy Story. Think about that, man. So now we're never going to watch Toy Story again or any of its sequels. How awful awful is Joss Whedon to infinity and beyond? Yeah. The first X-Men movie has several scenes that came from a first draft that Whedon wrote. Oh, that's why we got Naked Mystique. Uh, actually, apparently, the thing that made it in, the thing that made it in, still one of the things that made it in from from Whedon's draft was that moment when uh, 
when Cyclops questions whether Wolverine is really Wolverine or Mystique, and Wolverine just says, you're a dick, and and Cyclops is like, oh, yeah, you're you. That, tra- that tracks. <laughs> and then there's, you know, um, Titan AE, which I think is like one of these great underappreciated uh, 2000s animated sci-fi features. Like, I don't know if you've even ever heard of it, but it was like one of my all-time favorites uh, when it came out. Like, I ate this sucker up. Um, Twister. That 90s movie Twister with like Bill Paxton and stuff. Flying, was the flying the, cows, yeah. The flying cow. That's a Joss <laughs> Whedon script doctoring. The Quick and the Dead, that Western with, with Sharon Stone from 95. That was also script doctored by Whedon. So, you know, there are so many things that, that he his name aren't even on that, that he had an impact on. Like, are we... <sighs> It's such a complicated question because all, some of those things are like cultural touchstones. Like I, like Twister, as dumb and as silly as it is, I saw that movie in the theater when it opened. I remember the flying cow Dude, like it's was, nobody's that business. That was when Helen Hunt was the hottest thing in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. And I remember like, there's a flying cow. Oh, look, there's another flying cow. Oh, uh, no, I think that's the same one. Like that's just... It's it's just in, embedded in you, and and you know, we have a, a very interesting relationship, I think, with pop culture. Anyways, it's it, it's you know not not to get all venom here, but it's symbiotic. You know, like pop culture gives us things, and then we put that back out in pop culture. You know, like we we remix it and then grow into it, and then you know, reference it and use it, and and so much of of. Whedon is is you know so much of his work is a part of me, and and how do you how do you disconnect from that? And that's I'm I'm not sure that that's possible. Okay, Dave, let's transition from one very difficult discussion to another. Another one that is very impactful. Uh, probably we, it, it it's probably right up there with Whedon, if not surpassing one of the most influential creators of our generation. Uh, and that is J.K. Rowling, um, creator of Harry Potter and the Wizarding World and everything that spawns from that. Um, now, why is this a difficult situation, a difficult discussion to have? Um, J.K. Rowling is very famously, infamously uh, perceived as anti-trans. Um, she reiterates and stands firm that there are two biological genders, and that is that, end of story, cut and dry. Now, upon further examination uh, of you know Harry po- the Harry Potter books, um, you see things that are problematic, including her um, characterization of non-white characters with a name like Cho Chang or Kingsley Shacklebolt. You also think of um, something that a lot of people, including uh, large numbers of the Jewish population, that view as horribly anti-Semitic, and that is the goblins that run Gringotts Bank as being a very horrible mischaracterization of uh, Jewish people. So this is a <coughs> this is a big one, Dave. And a lot of people in our generation and even younger, identify very strongly with Harry Potter and you know you take your Hogwarts quiz and you're sorted into your houses they have memorabilia from their corresponding houses throughout the house um they have their robes 
it is probably one of the most influential properties that's been introduced in the last decade or two. Um, so what is your relationship with Harry Potter now, Dave? Here again, it's very complex. I will, I will f- freely admit that um, I'm not the most Harry Potter person. Uh, I, I've read all the books. They're, they're sitting on my shelf from when they first were released. Um, I really came to them predominantly, I think, because of my students um, who were badgering me to read it um, because they wanted my opinion on it. And and that's how I kind of started reading those. You know, I, I do a lot for my students. I've subjected myself to Twilight as well. I read <laughs> the first Twilight book, which uh, there are some students, ex-students of mine, who I will probably never quite forgive for that move. Um <laughs> But uh, one of I, our I one of our, here's a, here's a behind the curtain look. One of Dave and I first met. One of our uh, favorite bonding moments when we first met was dunking on Kristen Stewart, who now has had this like reparation project, and now she's up for an Oscar. Who would have thought? Yeah, she has come a long way as as an actress, and I don't and I don't completely fault her for the awfulness that is the Twilight movies, because although her performance was mouth breathingly awkward, <laughs> um, it, it, there is also not a lot there, I think, for an actor to really. Those movies are strangely. Those movies are strangely lit. Like there is this blue hue throughout. That was very strange. You know. The, the moment when I decided that this, this movie series was not for me was about a quarter into the first movie when he's sh- uh, Edward is showing off his um, vampire powers and he like piggybacks Kristen Stewart's character and he says, hang on, spider monkey. And I'm like... <laughs> I immediately thought I have, of Talladega Nights. <laughs> I have, I have never... Yeah, I've never <laughs> ever referred to somebody I was trying to date as a spider monkey. And I don't think that would be a smart move. I don't think most people would take that very well. Only when you're um, trying to come at them. <laughs> yeah, come at, come at me just like a spider monkey. Yeah. Um, so, but but yeah, I kind of came to Harry Potter via, via my students. Um, I, I watched the movies. I read the books. I found the books superior to the movies, obviously, as so often is the case. Um, and, I, you know, I've, I've, I kind of enjoy that world and how it is structured, although... There are clearly um, there are clearly some issues with it, as you mentioned. Uh, the the Jewish stereotypes that have been that kind of imbue that series are are troubling to begin with. But there was also you know there were also things to love there. I particularly enjoyed you know Hermione instantly you know sort of deciding that house elves needed to be freed and starting a whole organization to that effect. Um, there was you know there was a, a, a sense at least in the writing that um indicated uh you know very very open-minded sort of person behind the scenes there you know the person that was writing this had you know very clear views that hey you know you know um suppressing and and discriminating against a group of people because they're different in some way is bad i mean why else would you you know write about house elves the way you do and then you have um, you know, after the last book was released, of course, that that bombshell revelation that everybody was talking about, that she discussed that, yeah, Dumbledore was meant to be uh, a gay man and that that was all in the subtext of the book. But she never quite came out and said it outright. Um, and then you, you, you get a sense that J.K. Rowling is uh, at least, you know, somewhat enlightened in her attitude towards those who are different from her. And then this this whole trans thing started and you start looking, you know, at, at the books and you're like, 
how did this person write this scene or how did this person write that scene? There seems to be a disconnect between art and artist in, in this case that is very, very odd, um, at least to me. I'm not as married to the Harry Potter franchise as I am, for example, to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But I, it's hard as an educator not to have a mad appreciation for what it did to the sort of the Middle Ages group that were around when those books first started coming out because it it was beyond the movies just talking about the books now a phenomenon and it got so many kids to read that would not have read otherwise i can't get into anything but i love harry potter it was just such a moment for for reading and for for reading education and for getting kids into an imaginative um imaginative property and use their imagination and it was just it was so at being on the ground level and you know this being on the ground level with middle schoolers when this was happening it was it was incredible to see so many kids get into reading from the singular series and then it was very easy to see the series uh, and, and and its author as the good guys anyways when you had like you know continuous news stories of like you know, extremely conservative people want to burn the Harry Potter books because they're encouraging witchcraft and all this really odd, you know, um, kind of over-the-top reactionary stuff that was going on to the series. And now to see that whole pendulum swing the other way, I think it's just, it's sad. I, I think that above all else, what, what Rowling is doing by being that outspoken on, on, on this particular personal belief is that in the long term, uh, she's she's tainting her legacy and she's tainting the legacy of these books, which I believe could be a gateway to reading and an appreciation of books for, for future generations. And I'm not sure how, how well that is going to hold in the next 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah. It's really interesting. I, I saw uh, when uh, a couple of years ago, when this first new, this news came really came down uh, is someone that said, it's funny because J.K. Rowling taught us how to, you know, start a revolution against people like her, like you know, against. So like she raised us to fight people like her and 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 you know, bigoted ideas like this. And uh, my relationship to Harry Potter is very, very kind of unique. I think I didn't find the books, or I I found them; they were everywhere, um, but I didn't sit down and read the books until my late twenties. So I'm very, I was very new to the fandom, but it was, um, it was a very fast developed relationship with them. I went from, you know, reading all the books to, I was a super fan. I had my Ravenclaw robes. Um, you know, I had my mug, I had everything that was Ravenclaw decked out. I had all the four flags in my classroom flying proudly um, they were the way that I sorted my after school club that um, that I ran for a few years. Um, we gave out house points in the same way, and there was a winner. Um, and then this news came out, and um, it really struck me as super strange because it was disingenuous and so out of line with everything that I had read in the books. You know, there were some kind of weird things. There was also some elements of the way that she writes characters that are not, quote unquote, physically ideal. Uh, overweight characters are not treated very well. Um, 
in by by her writing they're they're very they're very cartoonized if you will um they're they're easy canon comedic fodder um the dursleys who are we are supposed to see as these evil antagonists are characterized um you know with very pejorative statements towards people who might struggle with their weight um but you know just the idea of being that staunchly anti-trans was just it was just stupefying to me i was speechless and you know in as the situation continued to evolve um i found that that was something that that was that was a definable line in the sand and something that i could not support um you know i recently had a child that that came out as trans and i felt that in order to be the best possible parent and ally to my child, I could not, you know, at the same time support my child. And then at the same time be supporting someone who was very loud. And I think that's part of it with me for JK Rowling as to why I make that clear delineation is because it's one thing to be kind of in the shadows and have rumors and unconfirmed things being said about you. Um, and then to be out and about and loud and proud with your stances on things like that, that make it an easy decision for me. So I have hung up all of my flags. Um, I don't read the books. I don't watch the films. Um, and that's just for me personally. I think for for from what I experience, I think it has to be a personal decision. Like what works for you? Now, I know people that who are members of the LGBTQ community who saw Harry Potter as that escape from, you know, like an oppressive, overly religious family. And like Harry Potter signified something special. They had to hide just to read the Harry Potter books. So for me, it was an easy decision, partly because I came to it late and because of my personal connection to the trans community. But for other people, it's not so simple. And see, now that's something I'll totally agree with. And isn't it also so very odd? And I don't know if you heard this, that the new the new Harry Potter game that they're working on, that's sort of like taking place in the past, is going to focus of all things on a goblin revolt. So now we're taking these, these um, Jewish caricatures for all intents and purposes and making them the bad guy in a video game. Um, there's just a lot going on with that franchise. But but. Rowling is so problematic at this point. It's very difficult to get any enjoyment out of, you know, even the the Fantastic Beasts movies, which have some really cool performances in it, you know. But like, how how do, how do you get any enjoyment out of that at that point? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. So, you know th- that that video game coming out was one of the things uh, when it was announced several years ago that I was looking very forward to. But now, it's, yeah, I'm not going to support anything like that. All right, Dave, so you probably have more expertise on this one. It probably impacts you greater than I do because I am I have not really been exposed to a lot of his work. But this is kind of ties into a little bit of the Joss Whedon stuff. But Jeff Johns, uh, behind the scenes with some real with a really bad record um, of when it comes to racism, particularly uh, against, you know, black individuals. So Jeff Johns, how do you stand on that? I don't know. I don't know how to stand on that. Um, I really don't. Johns became for a hot second sort of like an architect of uh, uh, at DC. I mean, so much of what was coming out of DC was what was Jeff Johns. 
uh, Infinite Crisis, you know, was Jeff Johns. Um, one of my favorite runs on on Teen Titans was Jeff Johns. An absolutely epic run on Green Lantern <laughs> was Jeff Johns. Um, a very, very cool run on Superman that actually brought Richard Donner into the fold because Johns you know, knew Donner really well was also <laughs> Jeff Johns. And so... Um, that one's really complicated because there's a whole era of DC that has a, a whole bunch of really good stuff going on. And sort of the creative thrust behind all of that, to some extent or another, was Jeff Johns. And I will freely admit, um, qualitatively, uh, he, he has, at least in my book, dropped tremendously. Uh, a lot of his more recent output, like, for example, the, the three-issue Black Label series, Three Jokers, um, you know, did not hit at all. He also did sort of a pseudo Watchmen sequel with Watchmen characters coming into the DC universe that also kind of missed um, in my book. So his most recent work, I, I don't consider to be, you know, all that. But then you have something like, like Stargirl, you know, which is a very deeply personal project for him. The character, you know, that he created inspired by his sister who's passed away. Um, and there's so much like love and light and goodness in that character in, in her initial series, in her, you know, justice society appearances, and now even in, in that, in the television series. And it's very difficult to reconcile. I think that particularly like the star girl side of John's with, with some of the stuff that, he has reportedly said and done. Um, so again, you know, it's one of those moments like, can, can I fully separate out something like his Green Lantern run, which, you know, loomed incredibly large in, in my DC comics, you know, reading at a time when I was really, really getting back into comic books. And there was this, you know, incredibly epic space, you know, odyssey of Green Lantern. Like, can, can can I completely disconnect from that? I mean, we're talking about a series that featured, I mean, Green Lantern Rebirth in particular, you know, Ethan Van Skyver, who is like, uh, the absolute worst example of a human being involved in comic books, it seems like. Like, that's that's even more difficult at that point. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like it's like you mentioned with, with uh, you know, Whedon's X-Men. Um, like, Oh, Morrison's X Men. Uh, pardon me. Like, like, how, how do you deal with that? Yeah. There's this, there's this artist creating this art that you're reading the story through, and it's just an absolutely, ah, uh, like the antithesis, antithesis of everything that you believe you stand for as a human being, you know. And then you're just like, how do you deal with this? How, how do you, how do you still enjoy this? Um, John's is a very, very complex situation for me. Uh, not nearly. Um, as influential on me as as Joss Whedon, and and therefore not as emotionally um, loaded. I will freely admit that I've not read a whole lot of Johns in recent, you know, months since that a lot of that has kind of come to the forefront, um, and I feel fine with it. So the problem I think to me is going to be, you know, if I ever get that itch to revisit some of those Green Lantern stories I enjoy so much you know, what is my feeling going to be at that point? Am I actually going to be able to, you know, open up that long box or two that I have down in my basement and, and pull those issues and actually reread them? And that, that, that I'm not sure about, Chris. 
Yeah, and I think, um, you know, as I said, I don't have a whole lot of experience with Jeff Johns, but um, there are plenty of problematic creators on the Marvel side of things as well. Uh, looking at you, Warren Ellis, Scott Lobdell, um, Brian Wood. So a lot of people that I've read um, that have problematic histories, theirs is pretty much like, you know, sexual misconduct and being uh, super gross. But, um, you know, with, with something like Jeff Johns, and we I think we talked about this when we were talking about um, the initial news of Ray Fisher is for all intents and purposes, he was basically like the head honcho of, you know, DC films and those adaptations. And we talked about like why his interpretations, his comic storylines were being the ones that were adapted into the DCEU. And, you know, there when there's when you have all those unchecked kind of power trips, you know, people get away with stuff. And and we said this before with when you have, you know, a lot of people with no accountability they get away with stuff. And, um, and, and I was talking to, um, a friend of ours, Jordan, who's actually local. Um, and you know, he said that it's impossible to go like 2015 to 17 with, with DC and not run into Jeff Johns. Um, but upon further examination, it was his experience that all of those things, kind of are are evidenced in the reading the glorification and the the uplifting of the the white male heroes over anybody else and you know and i think without kind of the system of checks and balances that you're so desperately needed even now in mainstream comics the majority of comic book writers are straight white men we are we are we are having to resort to these things like you know dc pride or marvel voices um you know, to get, you know, people who represent different backgrounds just a foot in the door, just to get their words on a page or their art on a page. Um, we're having to resort to these one shots uh, rather than, you know, giving them an ongoing. And so um, it, it's really frustrating. Yeah, yeah, I agree. We, it goes back to that whole accountability thing we've been talking about. Like, how do you hold people accountable, you know, who are in these privileged positions? Um, so, so, so they don't repeat these kinds of actions. And I don't, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. Well, when you, you know, you know, when even the United States legal system can't do it, then it, you know, the burden being on us as the consumer as fans, you know, I know Dave, I know that, uh, you know, us sports are not your bag, but this is something in my other, the other half of my nerddom is sports. And, you know, this is something that a lot of sports fans, um, you know, particularly with the Deshaun Watson news right now, where he has 22 active cases of sexual misconduct, but no criminal charges were brought. And so the Cleveland Browns go and give him the most guaranteed money for a contract in NFL history, while he has 22 active civil complaints for sexual misconduct. Like what, like what, what do you do with that as a sports fan? And your, your job is now enhanced as being the morality police because not even the U S court system can take care of business. So, um, you know, I, not, not necessarily to that level, but we see that in comics and, and, you know, entertainment as well. A lot is forgiven as long as you make money for the company. That's it. All in the name of the almighty dollar. All right, Dave, our last one. This is guys, this is a live reaction because Dave had no idea about this one when I put it in the dock. So uh, we both have nerd commended Immortal Hulk. Um, you with Immortal Hulk specifically, me with my entire Al Ewing run. 
read anything that Al Ewing does, whether that's, you know, Ultimates, Ultimates 2, whether that's New Avengers, Mighty Avengers. His Guardians of the Galaxy, I think, is even better than Immortal Hulk. That's my hot take. But Immortal Hulk is one of the most popular, one of the most well-received, well-regarded, critically acclaimed comic book series in all of comics over the past few years. One of the the predominant artist on that entire series, that 50 issue run, most of that art was done by Joe Bennett, who uh, it was found out is horrifically anti-Semitic. You had uh, one of the issues where there were some anti-Semitic comments uh, written into the background of the art and it was apologized for somehow made it through editorial and made it onto the printed page. Um, And then it got even worse um, I don't even want to give credence to what happened, but some other stuff was found out about Jen, uh, Joe Bennett. And just take my word for it. He is horribly anti-Semitic. Um, so Dave is learning that for the first time today. How does that impact your reading of that series, if at all? I, I see this is this is exactly what I'm talking about. You know, like like how do you deal with something like this? I, I I have no answer. We talk about separating art from artist, and can you actually do that? And 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 I think the answer here is, is this is a perfect summation of the problem. I don't have an answer for that. Immortal Hulk is a masterpiece. It it is a masterpiece. Al Ewing knocks the sucker out of the park in every conceivable way. Um, and it's it's a good looking book, and and not knowing this about about you know Joe Bennett, I enjoyed the art tremendously. I enjoyed the writing tremendously. Um, it's 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 a quality piece of art, probably the in in my book probably the best Hulk run of all time. It's unbelievable that that, that this artist is not just an anti semite, but on top of that was able to sneak things into the pages of a mortal Hulk. It's just, it's it's absolutely deplorable. So moving forward, at the very least, the right thing to do would would be to to you know obviously in reprints, uh, r- remove the stuff he snuck in, and just not do business with this man anymore. Because not only you know is he like J.K. Rowling, you know apparently pretty outspoken about his feelings, but he was also really putting egg on the face of of, of his employers by sneaking in this stuff that makes them look bad. So the responsible thing at at the very least moving forward would be to not do business with this man anymore. Let me ask you this, Dave, and this just dawned on me. Um, And this is by no means excusing any of the behavior of any of these individuals. Please do not think that I'm doing so. But it has been like a long running belief by, by a lot of consumers throughout centuries that Artists that are, no matter the field, that are in the tip top of their respective arenas are always off in some other departments. All of those resources of artistic ingenuity are being allocated towards pushing the forefront, pushing themselves to be the best in their respective fields. I think immediately of someone like Vincent Van Gogh. Dude, cut off his freaking ear. (laughs) Dude was clearly not stable. Is that no. is that something similar to what we're seeing here? I don't know. Uh, th- does creativity basically mean that there's something wrong with you? <laughs> I mean, like, is 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 creativity a form of insanity? I like, I cannot, 
I cannot believe that everybody who creates automatically is like damaged. Mm-hmm. Like, let's, I, I don't think that everybody who creates automatic automatically has, you know, Jared Leto's damaged tattoo on their forehead. I, as, I, <laughs> we always bring I, back I, to that. I, I like, I like to believe because there are so many creators that at least, at least from what we know publicly seem to be, you know, decent enough human beings. So, I, I just I, I refuse to believe that you can't be a creative individual and also, at the very least, try to be a, a moral and ethical individual. I, I I just refuse to believe that that is not possible. And maybe it's because I've written a hand, you know, a couple of comic books myself. Like I don't I don't want to look in the mirror and think is there is you know am I a horrible human being deep down and that's why I like to create. Like that's. I, I just refuse to believe that, Chris. I just, I, I can't, I can't reconcile that. Yeah. All right. I think that wraps up our discussion. That is incredibly difficult to have. Um, so, what are your thoughts? What are your comments? What did we miss? Please feel free to comment. Hit us up on social media at NerdByWord uh, on Twitter and Instagram, or individually that Nerd Dave, that Nerd Chris, and. Right around the bend after this break, I promise we're going to do something fun and enjoyable. We're going to hit you with nerd commendations that will hopefully lighten and brighten your day before we leave. All right, Dave, that was a heavy discussion, but now we're here for everybody's favorite part of the show. All right, Dave, you tip your hand with this one on social media, but what is your nerd commendation? So once again, DC Universe Infinite, where I apparently have just like, you know, set up shop and that's where I live now anytime I have a chance. I've been catching up on a lot of stuff that's kind of passed me by. And right now I am in the throes of Tom King's uh, Batman run, which sort of began uh, with the Rebirth era. Um, uh, it sort of followed the the Scott Snyder run, which is uh, very well loved and acclaimed. Uh, Tom King's run on on Batman apparently has left people a little bit more divided. Um, but going through it right now, I'm in the '60s uh, issue, sixty something, I believe, um, and his entire run is about eighty five issues. So I would say I'm 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 most of the way through it and heading for the finale. I have to say that overall. I find it quite enjoyable. There's some very interesting stuff happening in this run. Um, the bulk of the first half of the run is um, sort of, you know, various Batman adventures. In, and in the background, you have this sort of slowly expanding, simmering uh, relationship between Batman and Catwoman that, you know, has always been, you know, heavy flirtation and the like, but blossoms into, you know, a, a bigger love story uh, leads to, um, you know, Batman proposing, they're working up towards a wedding, and then, you know, you hit that moment where they're supposed to get married, and she leaves him at the altar. And from there, uh, the, the series sort of kind of gets into, you know, things being taken away from Batman and breaking him down, and can he come back from that? So he loses, you know, he, he loses the woman he loves uh, for reasons that he's not even quite clear on. Um, then Nightwing gets shot and he has memory loss that, that kind of disconnects him from the rest of the, the, the family, so to speak. And so slowly there's the sense that Batman is being broken down 
And at this point where I'm at now, it's becoming increasingly clear that a whole lot of this stuff was sort of masterminded uh, by Bain, that Bain has had his hands all over this situation for a significant amount of time in an effort to break uh, Batman, not physically like he did back in the in the 90s with like the Nightfall series where he literally broke his back, but he's looking to break him down um, emotionally. And, you know, it's not everything works in this run don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not sitting here and saying this is you know the greatest thing since sliced bread but it is so much more competent and so much more interesting than a lot of people i think give it credit for and the things that generally feel like missteps are things um like uh, things that sort of tie in with tom king's heroes in crisis which was an event comic that i deeply deeply disliked and so anytime he does like hints at, at you know, that whole storyline or kind of plants a seed that will eventually lead to that, it kind of takes me out of the overall run. But when Tom King is in full Batman mode, it is very, very good. Um, I also really like how he writes the relationship between Batman and Catwoman. Uh, it's very, very romantic. I see, it seems like Tom King at, uh, deep down is a really, really romantic guy. And seeing him sort of romanticize this on-again, off-again relationship between you know Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle is is a lot of fun to watch. You also get these moments where they're sort of you know sort of adventuring together. Um, and so Catwoman helps out Batman, uh, but then there's still that itch to her that she just can't help herself. Like when she you know has to pick out her wedding dress, she you know breaks into a a bridal shop in the middle of the night, and because you know she's she's a thief and she steals her wedding dress. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff here. Um, now I'm not sure how this is all going to conclude, and I've you know heard a kind of in the periphery of, of like social media and stuff that his initial plan was to run to like issue 100 and it got cut short. Um, so he didn't quite get to finish the story he wanted to. The vibe I'm getting from the way the story is structured is I think he was heading for a reunion and a wedding. And I, um, I don't think DC editorial was willing to marry off Batman. So that's probably why they cut, you know, his run short. That's at least a vibe I'm getting. I don't have, you know, necessarily proof of that but that seems to be what happens a lot um I'm, I'm recalling of course the whole batwoman situation uh marrying maggie sawyer and, and dc editorial kind of putting the kibosh on that so I, it feels a little bit like that it feels very much like they're heading for some kind of reunion and, and you know actually getting together and i guess editorial didn't like that um so are there missteps are there stories that don't quite work as well as others absolutely um and Tom King has written some stuff, particularly Heroes in Crisis, that just doesn't work for me at all. But when he is in full Batman mode here, I think there's a lot of really cool stories. Um, the War of Jokes and Riddles comes to mind, an early uh, Batman story, kind of a flashback where the, the Riddler and the Joker kind of get into it and start carving up Gotham and like getting other villains on their side and they're like fighting each other. And Batman's kind of stuck in the middle trying to save Gotham from, you know, getting, you know, lost in the crossfire. That That's when he really clicks. Um, that's when the series just really, really works. Uh, and I think there's a lot to like here. And and I, I recommend the run. Even, even through the missteps, there are things that I really, really enjoyed about this. Um, and I'm hoping he sticks to landing. Now, as a, as a complete newcomer to Batman comics, uh, my exposure is limited to the first few issues of both Year One 
and um, The Long Halloween and then uh, Batman TMNT from your last nerd commendation that I'm reading for an article prep. Um, is this somewhere you would go shortly thereafter or is there something else that I should try first? There are really, really good Batman stories. Lots of them. Uh, as I've mentioned, Scott Snyder's run is very, very highly acclaimed. It uh, sort of opens with the New 52 it's probably one of the few books in the new 52 that I have no problem recommending. Uh, the opening story is um, the court of owls, a secret society that tries to run Gotham from the shadows that Batman didn't even know existed. And he kind of gets on their trail and it's, it's a very, very good story. So there's good stuff in that run, but there's good stuff in, in this run as well. So, um, I don't think for either run you need a whole lot of background as long as you know sort of the basics of Batman and his whole setup, you know, Alfred and all that. As long as you sort of have the basics, I think either run is a good entry point if you want more Batman. I would say that most people will tell you that Snyder's run is better. Um, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I think it's different. It has a very different vibe to it. Um, Snyder's is very wheels within wheels. Um, and I think Tom King's is more, um, it, it has its heart more on its sleeve, I think. Um, and I think either approach with Batman works surprisingly well. It's just two kind of two sides of the same coin, I think. Is that a two-faced joke? Yes, it is. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. So, Chris, what are you nerd commending this week? Oh, man. Remember when we did that uh, Attitude Era episode? God, that was fun. So, oh, yes. I was fooling around on TikTok, and uh, one of the wrestling accounts, I, f- I found myself on wrestling TikTok, and I- I've kind of dabbled getting back into professional wrestling again. Um, and one of the reasons for that is I found this account that is posting clips from a documentary that first aired back in 2014 called Monday Night War WWE versus WCW. Um, and it really gives a great behind the scenes look of Monday Night Raw versus WCW Monday Nitro. Um, the synopsis on IMDb says a documentary about the period in sports entertainment known as the Monday Night Wars includes interviews with past and present on-air personalities. Also includes looking back on superstars and storylines that made the Monday Night Wars so memorable. And it's just really like a fascinating, you know, as, as a historian, uh, history nerd, um, as a wrestling fan, this brought me right back to my, like my middle school years where I was, you want to talk about sneaking up to watch Buffy? I was sneaking up Monday nights uh, to watch, you know, both. I was flipping back and forth between TNT and USA, like trying to catch as much of both as possible. I was a massive fan of both of them. Um, I know that when we did that episode that um, you were all 100% WWE slash F and you didn't watch WCW at all. So I think this would be interesting for you in particular because you kind of get to see the stuff that you missed. And it's just really interesting seeing these two big creatives uh, in Vince McMahon and Eric Bischoff kind of go toe to toe in this chess match of, oh, this other guy's having success doing this. How can I either copy that or try something to go in a completely different direction and where there were missteps and why WCW ultimately failed and, you know, WWE ultimately ends up buying out WCW. And now it's also interesting to kind of in retrospect to look at this now with the, the success of AEW kind of coming onto the scene and this jumps upstart company um, kind of not necessarily being like a huge threat 
to WWE, but like a, a respectable competitor coming out of nowhere, um, so to speak, and kind of recapturing some of the same flair, pun intended, that WCW had back in the day. Um, so it really brought me back, and it was really kind of interesting to see how the sausage was made and 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 see like why things were so successful and just from like a marketing perspective like they know their fan base they know what was going to sell um it was puppies spoiler alert um and just it is really good to take a trip back down memory lane and and it really kind of rekindled that love that i had for the that era in wrestling and 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 heck i might be watching wrestling again dude so I will wholeheartedly echo your nerd commendation because I've actually watched this. I'm pretty sure I have the DVD still down in my basement. Yes. It's also, I should, <laughs> a- I should, I should say that it is also streaming right now on Peacock. You can watch the first two episodes for free before you have to subscribe for four ninety nine a month. Oh, very nice. Yeah. This, this one was a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, I used it exactly how you suspected I would. I, I learned a lot about sort of the WCW side, which I never really got into as much. I was, I was a WWF guy back then. Uh, I refuse to call it WWE. That's nonsense. Right. So, um, sorry. Yeah. So, so, sorry, Panda people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. We we're, we're taking it back. So yeah, I, uh, yeah, I really like this documentary. I like a lot of uh, the output there for a hot second that uh, WWF did of like you know different DVD sets. Um, they have some very very cool sets. Not just about Monday Night War. They do a really good historical retrospective of ECW. I think at one point mm-hmm. too, they had some really good documentaries they put out for a hot second there. And this one is probably out of the bunch, probably the best. It's it's high quality stuff. And if you if you enjoyed that era of wrestling, I don't think it gets much better than this. Yeah, can you dig that, suckers? All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you for sticking around with our difficult conversation, and we'd love to hear your input on how you go about separating art from artist or what your take is on the entire thing. Please be sure to let us know. Um, If you like what you hear, please listen, like, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, uh, or nerdbyword.com. And find us on social media where we're always interested to hear what you think about the show or the topics that we've been discussing. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at nerdbyword or individually at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave. And be ready because episode 99 is right around the corner. We talk about it all the time. We love Deep Space Nine oh so much. So stick around and be prepared for 99 coming right around. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.